Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 236 for February 18th, 2010. Q&A number 86. Security Now is brought to you by GoToMeeting, the affordable way to meet with clients and colleagues. For your free 30-day trial, visit GoToMeeting.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all things secure and insecure, mostly insecure, and how to make them secure, your privacy and all that. Steve Gibson is here. He is the guru at GRC. Dot com, the Gibson Research Corporation, the author of SpinRight, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, and a many great free security utilities. And uh, this is episode 236, so uh, that makes it uh, our fifth year of uh, Into security. our fifth year, wow. yeah. Wow. No sign of running out of stuff to talk about. We've got, it wasn't a super active week, but we've got the usual suspects lined up, a little bit of errata, and some great questions from our listeners. It's a Q&A. Yep. All right. Well, let's uh, let's uh, let's see here. Let me just look. I guess let's start with the errata and the news, uh, and then uh, we can yeah. get into the Q and A. Um, last week we talked about Microsoft's second Tuesday of the month standard February in this case uh, security update. Um, a disturbing number of people began to get the notorious and infamous blue screen of death as it's called you know the 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 kernel crash essentially after installing microsoft's monthly set of patches there were it was a big one in february unlike january that was pretty um, modest and further analysis revealed that one of the patches in particular ms 10-015 which fixed a problem that we had spoken of a few weeks before, which was this local privilege elevation vulnerability where someone could, um, who had local logon privileges were, would essentially leverage some old code in Windows, the, the NT virtual machine manager that does the DOS box stuff in order to uh, elevate themselves to an admin user with full system privileges. So Microsoft fixed that, but for some users, the result was a blue screen of death that Microsoft couldn't figure out. Well, Symantec figured out what was going on. It turns out that there was an interaction between that fix, which moved things around in a couple of the kernel system modules, an interaction between that and... <laughs> a very bad rootkit Trojan backdoor. So Whoopsies. this thing was detecting. So don't you just hate it when the rootkit Trojan backdoor <laughs> interacts with your <laughs> Get in the way of your security <laughs> updates. Uh, That's really. really interesting, though. But, but, you know, I remember when Service Pack 2 came out. And, uh, uh, you know, some people had no problems. Some people had problems. And I really always was, uh, kind of suspected that the real problem was that the, if the system wasn't clean 
that you were going to have more problems with these updates. Well, I mean, the whole the whole concept of this incremental, you know, m- moving modules forward with all kinds of device drivers and other things. I mean, it, it may very well be that there are other problems in addition to this particular rootkit. Uh, that it's right. TIDSERV, which opens a back door. It opens ports, essentially, on your machine that allows for remote control of your computer. It uh, uses rootkit technology to hide itself, so it's not easily detectable by software. And it had hard-coded the offsets of specific code in the kernel, which changed under this particular patch, which caused it then to make your machine crash. So it was sort of a, a backhanded rootkit detector um, that <laughs> that was triggered by this update. Microsoft has suspended offering the update um, as of last weekend. They said, okay, we're going to take this out of our update batch because we don't want to be BSODing people's machines, even though it looks like it's a rootkit detector. So hmm. I thought that was a little uh, odd bit of news. Hmm. Um, once again, we have a critical out-of-cycle patch from Adobe the it turns out that um it's been it's been found that flash running in so many browsers can be used to spy on people who have flash wow. it's, you could go to a malicious web page that would bring some flash script to your browser run in the in the adobe flash interpreter which is essentially what it is and and that malicious code has the ability to look at the pages and other web pages and and web browser windows that you may have open, read them, and then, like, get usernames and passwords and banking data, anything it wants to, scrape the other windows that you may have open in your web browser and send those somewhere. So... Uh, and this is as of the 15th of February. So um, our listeners ought to go. You can just go to get.adobe.com slash flash player in order to make sure you're running the most recent cur- current version of Flash. And, you know, they were uh, Adobe believed once they were going to do quarterly updates. Um, and, you know, they're not even surviving monthly updates at this point because they've got so many problems. Um, uh, one other little bit of news caught my eye, which is that on March 1st, the a data protection law, which is the first of its kind in the country, is going into effect in Massachusetts. It was originally scheduled to take effect on January 1st of 2009, but there was a huge amount of pushback from Massachusetts-based um, businesses that thought that this thing was a little too strong and, and overreaching. Um, it's it's being heralded by the security community as a really good thing, something that, that they hope more states will enact and maybe we'll even get something at the federal level, level at some point. Basically, it says that that businesses doing businesses located anywhere doing businesses with customers in Massachusetts must encrypt any of the business data, any personal private data of Massachusetts residents on portable storage devices. 
And it's like, well, yeah, that <laughs> sounds like a really no-brainer good thing to do. Um, and also specifies that any data that is being transacted must be encrypted in flight. So, again, it's like, yeah, you know, use SSL to to interact with these customers. Um, so, um, it's it's... It's the the law which was going to happen on January first of '09 has been modified a couple times. Now it's moving forward and takes effect on March first. Hmm. So, um, anyway, that's just a good thing. There was some language where companies doing business with Massachusetts residents had to make representations about what third parties that is like the 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 companies third-party affiliates might be doing with any data that was being shared. And that's where the most of the problem with this was was coming from because these companies were saying, wait a minute, we, we can't really make affirmative representations about what our partner companies might be doing. And it's like, uh, well, why not? Are you, you know, turning this data over and not safeguarding it? So so they were concerned there. And so that that actually got softened somewhat uh, so that they can, you know, it's like a, a best effort uh, verbiage now instead of making stronger assertions. Mm-hmm. And then in my favorite, this, you know, this is like too bizarre to be true, but it is. Um, there's a very prevalent fake AV antivirus software known as Live PC Care, which for some time has been bothering users popping up on their screen, telling them that they're going to run an antivirus scan and so forth. I got a call this weekend on it. Well, (laughs) the company has gone one step further. They've added live real-time support chat. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, chat with us. Let's talk. (laughs) And it's legitimate. I mean, it's, it's legitimately real. It's, there's a yellow button on the screen that comes up and as if you'd like to to to, to chat uh, interactively with one of our technicians, please press this button. And it uses a, a free live chat system called LiveZilla, pops up a window, and the, from the analysis that's been done, it appears that there are real people at the other end of this answering people's questions. Sure, they pay about, for a call center. About a completely fake right. AV scan and basically convincing people to to you know pay their money in order to get software that does nothing. And for all we know, those people don't even know that they're part of a scam. That's a good point. Hadn't occurred to me. They they may not be aware of it. Yeah. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. So, um uh last little bit of I have two pieces of errata. Um we also talked last week about two malicious plugins that had somehow crept into Mozilla's database of Firefox plugins. Um, um, and I remember you asked me that there was one from a reputable company that I actually like, this the SoThink company that do a, the Flash decompiler. Yeah. They had something called the Web Video Downloader. And neither of us could really figure out, well, if it was malicious, how did it, you know, at what point did it creep in? Turns out it never did. It was a false positive on the virus scan. Oh, okay. So I just wanted That's to a clear, I wanted to clear that up. Yes, they were using a compressor some time ago called an armadillo compressor was the name of the of the compression technology. And 
the because some malware uses the same compressor the there was some there was some AV software which was false positiving on that and, and I've I've had that happen with my own code that, that that can happen from time to time and Leo do you have a web browser I know this is a stupid question do you have a web browser in front of you yeah uh, Google best DNS benchmark. Best DNS benchmark. Best right. DNS benchmark. The first Googling link right up. now. First probably the best up. consumer DNS benchmark world in the tool in the world. Steve Gibson. Now, Unfortunately, the, the the lead is Steve Gibson is an old man. <laughs> well, isn't that nice, you little <gasps> punk, Michael Tan? Uh, Screw gotta, you, Michael Tan. <laughs> I got Later on, he calls me a kook, but That's in a good way. Funny. Even when he was young in 1989, I used his software. When he was young. Isn't that great? I That's just only 20 it. years ago. Come on. Gibson is an old man. Oh, I can't wait till That's Michael sunny. Tan is over 20. And then uh, I just Actually, it's a really nice little article. I was, I'm was working again on getting the documentation finished for the benchmark. And um, at, I took a break Monday around noon. I thought, I wonder what comes up. Because I, I noticed how many things so are funny. downloaded. And, I was and it went up fast, right? You're, oh yeah, I yeah. mean th- tens of thousands of copies are out and being used and and recommended. So I just I googled best DNS benchmark, wondering what Google would have to say, and there was that first link that I what I was so caught funny. off guard by. Steve, he, by the way, it, he says that I think the highest praise, despite this old man crap, <laughs> he says he's not really a programmer; he's a craftsman, and I, uh, yeah, and I yeah, think I mean, that he, that's apt. He understands me. I yeah. I have to say I really I appreciated what yeah. he had to say. So. Yeah. Yeah. And then I got an interesting piece of uh, feedback on Spinrite that also refers to several of the show sponsors. Um, from Derek, who wrote, um, said, Spinrite and Twit.tv saves my mum. <laughs> it said, said, more than just a Spinrite story, this one gives thanks to a few of the Twit TV sponsors. My mum is now 70 and lives some distance away from me a full day trip. I went to see my mom at Christmas, and almost as soon as I walked in, she said, the computer won't boot. It's doing a blue screen thing. And yes, it was a Windows can't boot, kernel DLL is missing or damaged error. My first move, of course, was Spinrite. And as expected, it had things working again within an hour. I then discussed replacing the hard drive. Mum decided to leave it until it died and then replace it. At this point, I installed Carbonite. After all, we're now waiting for the hard drive to fail. I went home. The computer was backed up and running well. And then, about three weeks later, the drive died. The, the, that resulted in another overnight trip. BIOS would only see a zero megabyte disk, and the drive would not spin up at all. RIP. I replaced the drive and reinstalled Windows, then did a restore of data using Carbonite. A few days after I got home, Mom had questions about missing applications such as Skype, because I guess somehow that, that hadn't been restored. So I used gotoassist.com and used the remote tools I installed, and, and, and using the remote tools, I installed the webcam drivers and Skype, which she was missing. I now remote into mom's computer as needed and help with any questions, make sure updates have been done and such like. A big thanks to Spinrite, which fixed the drive the first time, Carbonite, easy backup, even my mom can use, 
go to assist, remote access without needing NAT settings changed. And last of all, thanks to Twit for the best podcasts on the internet. Isn't that sweet? Oh, that's nice. Thank you, Derek. And I'm glad we could help with your mom. Yes. Maybe we can help with something else right now, actually. uh, I use this with my mom. It's called Go to Assist Express. That's a great product from uh, the folks at Citrix. Uh, they also do go to my PC. They're the, there's the experts on remote access. In fact, if you are in an enterprise, if you're in a biz- big business, Citrix will ring a bell because they do the high-end Windows uh, remote access stuff. They have uh, put together a really great program. You've heard me talk about it before. For business meetings. Same kind of backbone of the software. But it's too, this is they're so smart. I mean, they've got the fundamental... Uh, technology, which is the best in the world for remote access, and then they've 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 packaged it in such a way that it's great for uh, you know support, or it's great for remote access uh, for everybody, or in this case for business meetings. What's it? What is the average cost of your business meetings? You know, when you fly across the country, you get a hotel room, even if it's just for one night, meals, the stress and strain of you know the security line. According to American Express, it's and they know because most of the you know these business guys are using and gals are using American Express cards right for their business expense, a thousand dollars for one trip. That could, that could really add up. It really kill the profits. That's where go to meeting is so handy. You know you can do more of your meetings on the phone using a conference call with the addition of go to meeting. Now it's visual. You could show the PowerPoint. You could show the drawings. Compare spreadsheets. You could collaborate on documents. You can even use it for training because with go to meeting when it's on your system you can give your Meetees control of your system and say, okay, I've shown you how to use it. Now you try it. I want you to give it a try for 30 days. It's, it's really uh, beautifully elegant, sweet software. Go to us. You go, I'm sorry, go to meeting.com slash security. Now is the website. G O T O meeting.com slash security. Now you get a 30 day free trial. That includes, by the way, free voice over internet and phone teleconferencing. So really it's a complete package for online meetings. Go to meeting.com slash security now. I want you to give it a try. Let us know what you think about it. We'll give you the 30-day trial because we know you're smart. And the best way for you to judge whether this is right for you is to try it. Mac or PC, go to meeting.com slash security now. I have questions for you. Yay. If you have answers. Thanks to our our listeners who keep going to grc.com slash security now and sending me their questions. It's great. I just love every two weeks. Jump in my mailbag and sorting around through it. So, uh, and they use our stuff, which is great. It's yep. so nice when I when I hear that because uh, we, you know, I have to say we're very careful about choosing our um, our uh, partners, uh, the advertisers, because we don't want to put anything on here that we can't say. You know, this is good. We use it. Yep. And so it's nice to hear back from people who say, "Yeah, we use it too." Question one from Sean McLary in Brampton, Ontario, Canada. He worries that packet loss could be a threat to security. Steve, I've been your Security Now listener since episode 60. Of course, I had to listen to the rest from before, too. <laughs> so he's now he's, he's 100%. I do have a question that may interest you. Are packet losses all right when your router has a secure connection uh, and is using WPA or WPA2 on its Wi-Fi? Or uh, are they bad? Can they give an intruder access to your network without knowing? Sometimes when I do ping tests, I see lots of lost packets. What, what does that mean? Should I be worried? Where are those packets going? Can they use those against me? <laughs> well, there have been some exploits historically which 
which essentially um, used interference in Wi-Fi transactions to 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 induce either the client or the base station to to generate packets at a much greater rate than they normally otherwise would in order to acquire a much larger set of samples to be used for cracking. Now, the good news is WPA and WPA2 are not susceptible to that kind of attack. Uh, the older WEP, WEP encryption was. And so one of the things that, you know, there was originally people said, oh, well, we know there's some weaknesses in WEP encryption, but it would take, you know, uh, hours, weeks, years, well, not hours, but I mean like much longer time in order for enough data to be collected. Of course, the bad guys are clever and they figured out how to induce endpoints to generate a much higher rate of the kind of packets they needed in order to analyze, to crack web encryption, uh, ultimately bringing the entire time to crack it down to about a minute. So, um, So in the case of wireless that's not a problem. Now, when you do ping tests, though, if, for example, you're pinging Google.com or Microsoft.com or, or something, um, what you're seeing is something which is a natural function of the way the net works. The, the concept is, and we've talked about this in different contexts pretty much for four and a half years of the podcast, is that when, when we... We think in terms of connections, in terms of connecting to something and and exchanging data, connecting to a server, getting a web page, connecting to an email server and retrieving mail. This is a so-called virtual connection, meaning that it's sort of an agreement between the two endpoints that they're connected. And what that means is that individual packets are are sent in little bursts back and forth, and it's done so quickly that we sort of see that as a continuous flow of information. However, the packets themselves are freestanding, standalone, each one aimed at its destination. They may get there, they may get there out of sequence, or they may get lost along the way. Um, routers have a sort of a best effort approach. They try to send packets from from one input to one output but you could have a lot of inputs all feeding to one output and receiving more packets in total coming in from different sources than you're able to squeeze into the output and and there are there are buffers in routers to sort of allow them to briefly store up packets hoping that the output will 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 um be able to accommodate the, the packets that are being routed, but it is the case that routers have by design the the right essentially to just drop the packets that they're not able to forward onto the next hop across the internet. So packet loss normally just represents some congestion, some point on the internet between where the pack where the packet originates and where it's going, where there's just some some brief inability to get for all the bandwidth to to fit through a certain point of congestion. So it's really not something to worry about. And as long as you're using WPA2 and WPA, WPA or WPA2 encryption, 
there's certainly no concern about what you're what you're seeing in terms of connectivity troubles and security with web that could be a problem with wpa it's not good to know drop into packets tom and zip code th- <laughs> <laughs> and zip code 33441 i don't even know where that is but i'm sure i could google it wonders about defeating keyloggers on a public computer he writes, Steve, is there any way to reliably thwart hardware and software keyloggers and screen scrapers on a public computer? The only solutions I've discovered are the following. Iron Key, with, a, with its built-in password mass manager, a combination of LastPass with YubiKey. Are there any other ways to do it? Thanks. Love the show. Happy SpinWrite owner, Tom from 33441. Each day, I eagerly hope that Steve will start working full-time on CryptoLink. Each day, my hopes are dashed. When? When? Sigh. Okay, well, first, um, it would be nice to be able to say that there's a way to reliably defeat keyloggers on public computers. And I've got to say that there isn't. Um, I can't think of... Probably anything more frightening than using a public computer that is some, you know, like a computer in a library or in a in a Internet cafe that is being used by lots of people. Um, I can't think of anything more frightening than to use such a machine for critical, sensitive work. They're just I don't think there's any way you could argue that anything you could do as you approach that machine could make it safe. Um, there could be a, a keystroke logger in the keyboard. Now, okay, so we'd use cut and paste in order to avoid typing the the credentials in, but the browser's still going to get it. There's all kinds of ways of intercepting even SSL data at the machine. You can't intercept it once it leaves the machine, but there's many layers in the operating system where where the data is available before it gets down to the TCP IP stack and and actually leaves. So, you know, there are some there's some programs which allow de- uh, developers to see the contents of SSL connections outside of the browser. I've got one uh, which I use um, when I'm developing stuff over SSL because it's inconvenient not to be able to see those SSL connections. So in the same way that good software could do that, so could malicious software. So Hmm. I would like to completely disabuse anyone from the idea that using a public computer can be safe i I mean just can't you can't do anything you can to avoid using such a machine you know the the best thing to do is bring your own along because you know i mean we we know that end users may even have problems with their own machine but at least you got some sense for the history of it you know if you're the only one using it you know how safe you've been you know what security provisions you've got you know if you can bring your own and plug it in to a public location that's far safer than walking up to some screen and keyboard about which you know nothing i just there's just 
isn't anything you can do that could make that safe. That's really good to know. I mean, I think to make that unequivocal statement is, is yeah. exactly right. There's nothing, nothing you can do There's to make no it point. safe. Yeah, just just rearrange your life so you don't have to do that. Right. Which makes me sad for people who don't own computers, uh, and many don't, because what are you going to do? Well, I, I would say that I understand, and certainly the you know, library, you know, banks of access accessible machines that, that are affordable in a library makes great sense for surfing the web and browsing and doing things, but don't do your banking. On that machine, you know, there's where you, you know, you got to go up to the teller window if you don't have a way to do it online in a safe way. Just you can't use a public machine safely. Ray Herrera in Oakland, California. Did you answer the CryptoLink question? Oh, I forgot CryptoLink. Um, uh, no, I didn't. Thank you. Um, it is my pending big project. I'm back working on the DNS benchmark documentation. That gets followed by the DNS spoofability documentation, which then fall is followed by the the GRC cookie third party cookie documentation. Um, then I got to do a little work on security now because that security now page at GRC is getting ridiculously long. All two hundred and thirty six episodes are on one page, so I need to to spend some time on that. Then I work on CryptoLink. So I'm just doing a bunch of housekeeping, and I'm salivating myself for at the thought of getting on to a really nice meaty development project i can't wait so it's definitely going to happen you one thing you can count on steve loves writing software oh <laughs> it's his <laughs> it's his highest art when you're you know i mean when you're an artist you do everything else as a as a means to doing the one thing you care about most which is your it's art how i got to be an old man later. yeah <laughs> A kooky old man, I think. Sorry, a kooky old man. <laughs> Ray Herrera, Oakland, California, with the question, do you still use Jungle Disk? Steve, I've been putting off going with Jungle Disk since I first listened to Security Now, episode 123. Then after a recent power supply failure, I've been looking to actually start using Jungle Disk or something similar like Mosey or Carbonite. My question is, do you still use Jungle Disk today even after they were bought out by Rackspace and have moved to a subscription-based model? Sincerely, Ray Herrera. Well, the answer is yes, but I'm also very glad that I got on board in the beginning because I did recently notice, um, I think they went to Jungle Disk version 3, and I saw that while they are grandfathering all of their original customers in as free forever, and I really appreciate that, no new customers get that deal. So... Any of our listeners who did jump on Jungle Disk and signed up for it, well, basically got it for free um, back when they did, um, or I guess maybe it was 1995. I think there was a purchase, a one-time purchase, and then you had it forever. Uh, and now, apparently, it's a, it's a subscription model. I did notice that they had changed that, and I was sorry to see that happen. I should say, though, that I still love it. I mean, I love it because I understand it, because it is simple and because I absolutely know that it is performing very strong encryption at my machine before that data leaves. I receive a monthly bill from Amazon for 14 cents, <laughs> I think it is about what it cost me. Um, and just, in fact, it was Monday when I was working on the DNS benchmark, um, or no, it was yesterday. 
Tuesday, because um, we're recording this on Wednesday, I just, my finger slipped and I deleted a file from my benchmark directory. And I had it in several other places, but I thought, oh, I, I'm sure that's up on, on Amazon. And sure enough, I opened my J drive, J for jungle disk, and grabbed the file and dragged it back into the DNS benchmark directory. It was a file of little colored icons that I was that I was using for the documentation on the web page. And so, you know, I use it all the time. I still think it's a great solution. Now, the good news is there are other interfaces to the Amazon S3 offering. And um, I, I haven't looked at any of the others, so I can't vouch for them. I really like Jungle Disk because I understand the way it works. And, you know, I guess they made a business decision about... Uh, uh, selling off to to Rackspace and going to a subscription model, which is, I think it's unfortunate. But um, if that works for you, I I can vouch for the fact that the technology is solid. Yeah, I still I, I'm also grandfathered and I still do uh, use it. You know about car the thing about Carbonite, Mosey less so. I have to say, um, if you want to try Mosey first and try restoring from Mosey and before you commit to Mosey. It's very the the some of the the software is not elegant, mm. but um, the thing about Carbonite and and this is true Mosey too is that they are very easy to use, very easy to set up, and you know what it's going to cost. There's no surprises. Jungle Disk isn't expensive, but if you're backing up gigabytes, it rapidly can become expensive because you pay for both bandwidth and storage at EC, at uh, S3. Correct. So um, it's cheap for you and me because we're not backing up that much. Right, I, I, I'm just using it literally to like store data files, current, you know, like current documents and that kind of right. thing. And it's and I think it's good for that. It also requires a, a much more sophisticated user. On the other hand, if you want more control, it's a, I think it's a very good choice for somebody who wants more control. I haven't seen what the new Jungle Disk is like. Do they require to use Rackspace instead of S3? Uh, no, you have a choice between the two. Still uses S. It still uses S3, so you can choose between the two. They and they go through. They have a nice page where they where they show the differing economic models. And I remember that e that they were different and that I was still happy that I was at Amazon. So I don't, although I don't remember the exact details. So yeah. anyone who's curious can, can go take a look at that, at the jungle desk site. And you know, it's, it's, it's looks very nice. It's getting additional features. I'm not Mr. Big feature King. So I just, you know, I want, I'd rather have things that are feature spare and and just work in a lightweight, robust fashion, and, and at least that's how I'm using it. So I'm happy with it. Yeah, yeah, I use them both. To be honest, um, there's you know the, it's nice to put Carbonite on, a, and they have a new Carbonite Pro product, which is um, for small business. That's what we're going to use here because it's multiple machines, but one dashboard. Um, and you know what I what I really liked using Carbonite, for, I mean uh, Jungle Disk for, and this is a good solution if you have a NAS that is backing up everything which our NASs are supposed to be doing. <laughs> I no longer do the IT, so I don't know what it's currently doing. But if the NAS is backing up everything, and then that NAS is running Jungle Disk, which you can do, and backs it up to S3, then that's kind of the best of both worlds. You have a completely automated system that's, that you shouldn't have to maintain or pay attention to. And I think you have fairly high certainty that you've got good backups locally and off-site. And I, you know, I'm so paranoid. I'm like you, I'm sure. I'm always backing up locally on a USB key and... I have uh, all of my documents are on all of my machines. <laughs> I think that the the, the the users who have been at computers long enough have have taken enough hits 
from working all day and then, you know, with I, with not saving a document and then having the computer lock up on them. It's like, oh, God, uh, you know, that, you know, we learn their lesson. And, you know, I'm hitting control S all the time. And I'm, you know, I'm I don't believe that my laptop is ever going to boot again when I shut it down. So any of the work that I've done, I'll drop it over onto the J drive on my laptop and off it goes to through jungle disk to Amazon. Or I'll I have got a little a little encrypted USB drive on my keychain and I'll I'll make copies there. I mean stuff that I really care about I have in multiple locations because you just have to. Mm-hmm. Moving on, great. I think that's a good discussion. We should we should talk about these things more because uh, I think the really simple stuff that you and I just assume well everybody knows is also yeah. the stuff that's sometimes the most useful for our audience. Yeah, cool. You back up, right? You know how to back up. I don't have to tell you that. Patrick McCalling, Guelph, Ontario, Canada, wonders about a cool new feature of the Opera web browser called Opera Unite. Steve, I, I, w- I was wondering if you could comment on something I just read uh, on Lifehacker. Their how-to geek, which is, by the way, great column, wrote a piece about the best way to share large files with a few friends. It involves using a feature of the Opera web browser called Opera Unite that apparently sets up a web server inside your browser. Oh, dear. I know. <laughs> just shoot me now. <laughs> I don't have to read much more, but okay, let's keep going. It enables standard HTT protocol to allow your friends... It's putting a web server on your system. I know. Using not just Opera, but any browser to access files directly on your computer. What could be wrong with that? They explain that Unite automatically... You know, I saw I played with Unite, and I... Anyway, I, uh, they explain that Unite automatically hooks into your router using UPnP. <laughs> <laughs> it just keeps getting better. <laughs> to automatically open port 8840, but it can also use a Unite proxy server to dynamically uh, uh, when you're behind a more restrictive firewall, though it will obviously be slower. They say the files are password protected, but I wondered what you thought of this from a security perspective. And then he gives the URL. If you Google Lifehacker and Opera Unite, I'm sure you will find it. What do you uh, think? What do you think? Well, oh, is right. Yeah. I mean, if you want to give access to your machine, I think just remove your router and turn off your personal firewall. There and you go. It makes fine. it easy. It'll be fine for about about a minute. Um, no, this is just the worst idea I've ever heard of. I mean, I with with all due respect to the Lifehacker blog and the you know those guys. I mean, this just sounds like trouble waiting to happen. Um, there will be predictably if this were to take off. Scanners looking for connections on 8840, which is the default port, which people won't change. And people will say, oh, well, you know, I don't want Aunt Mary to have to use a password. Let's just, I'll just leave that blank because that'll be easier for her. (laughs) Um, Apparently, a part of Opera Unite is it ties in with their own dynamic DNS server so that you're able to give your instance of a web browser a nice memorable url name so i don't know this just i i I love the posting because this is i mean just all the way through it we learn about things that we spent the last four and a half years warning our listeners about for example the fact that this thing uses universal plug and play to connect to the router and open a port without you having to do anything so that unsolicited traffic is able to come in through port 8840 and get to your machine. Um, We hope like crazy that there's no 
buffer overflows, overruns, uh, mistakes of any sort in the web browser, I mean, sorry, the web server that Opera Unite is running in your machine, because if there is, it's game over. Anyway, this is just, unfortunately, not the way I would recommend people share files. Yeah. I did notice on the Lifehacker page, um, as someone had posted in, in, the, in the comments that Dropbox was a, a workable alternative. And uh, we've I, used both Dropbox and Pogo Plug. What do you think of those solutions? Um, I think they're great. And I mean, you know, we're using Pogo Plug now for you to get the, the audio to me. And, and it seems like a very nice solution. I like the idea of, of someone doing this whose entire business model is about it rather than adding it as a button to an existing browser. I don't know. It just That just scares me. It's just, it's, it takes a lot of responsibility to run a web server. It's not an easy thing to do, as we see with people's websites being hacked all over the place. And this thing has all kinds of other features and add-ons and plug-ins. And I just, I just shake my head and think, well, nothing could make me do it. So I would caution our users about it, too. Question uh, five from New Zealand. Colin Perry wonders about reverse engineering assembly language. This kind of, I guess, ties to what we talked about in the last couple of episodes, the machine language yeah. story. Hi, Stephen Leo. In your opinion, would it be easier to reverse engineer or hack a program written in assembly language, you know, the, the machine code, the one-to-one -one correspondence code that we've been talking about, uh, as opposed to a program written in a higher-level language like, say, C or, or a scripting language like Perl? I ask this as the resulting machine code is directly related to what the author was thinking as compared to a compiler's interpretation of what the author was thinking. That's a, that's a good point. When you look at source, uh, when you disassemble, well, first of all, what is disassembly? Well, so I thought this was a great question, and it does. We, we, we've had a, a ton of really great feedback from our How Computer Works episodes. Our listeners are really enjoying them. So, um, so th this, of course, stems from that. Um, when... When you write an assembly language, exactly as Colin suggests, you're, you're putting down, the, and as we talked about last week, you're putting down the individual step-by-step -step instructions that you want the computer to execute. Um, and so when you analyze the result, the actual EXE, the, the executable code, it is exactly what the author wrote. In fact, it's funny, you know, th there have been discussions in our news groups about people saying, hey, Steve, you know, why don't you do stuff in open source? And, so, and some people who have replied before I saw the posting or had a chance to reply have said, well, Steve writes everything in assembly language. So if you just disassemble it, that is the source. It's the same as what Steve wrote. Of course, it's absent meaningful labels and, and comments and things. And my source code is extremely legible compared to what you get when you disassemble something. But what a compiler does, a so-called higher level language, is you're writing in and sort of a, a, an abstract language, a, 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 a language that is not directly related to the way the computer underneath performs the work. The beauty of that is that you can have the same code 
that will that, that that you write in a high level language will run on entirely different types of computers with different architectures internally and different machine languages where the compiler compiles that universal like a language like C for example down into the specific machine language for different machines the result of that though is if you look at the code which the compiler produces it you can immediately tell i can immediately tell as someone who writes this kind of code that no human did this yeah this compilers a, do all sorts of weird optimizations and weird stuff that well yeah and in fact one of the things that keeps me coming back at or staying at assembly language is you know there's this argument about oh modern comp optimizing compilers are so good now that there's really no difference between the code they produce and what people write it's like oh give me a break i've looked at this stuff and it is just god awful it's just horrendous so so because of that and as colin's question um, aims at it is much it's truly much more difficult to see to un to understand what a compiler's code is trying to do than assembly language which directly translates into machine language to do the same job i would say it, it's like maybe maybe at least twice as large maybe three times as large meaning that there's instructions that you see that just sort of are just laid, look like spaghetti. It's just not at all clear what's going on. So it's definitely the case that reverse engineering assembly written code, I think, is dramatically easier than than automated produced code. And for, for one thing, it's like much smaller. We know how small my applications are compared to things other people write so if you're going to reverse engineer something that's you know a megabyte you've just got a lot more fun you know physical work to do than reverse engineering something that's you know a few tens of k bytes i i've talked to uh, hackers about that and um most of them say especially those who do a lot of, you know if you do a lot of disassembling you're doing mostly high level languages nobody writes an assembler anymore <laughs> and uh they say it's just you know they they're so used to it they so rec they they can immediately recognize patterns it's all about pattern recognition yep so they immediately recognize patterns oh yeah that's the loop oh yeah i see what they're you know and so they know especially as they learn the different compilers oh i recognize that bunch of code sure and really that's what you're doing isn't it when you look at code disassembled code you're looking at patterns the thing that you're lacking is the symbol table so uh, without the names of the variables, you really have to kind of, it's, it's very interesting. It's fun to do. It's a great puzzle. It really is. Yes. And, and if you want to learn to program or understand how computers work, it's a good exercise once you become more advanced. But uh, of course, now I've never looked at things like uh, small talk and these uh, interpreted programs and scripting languages. Uh, that must be very difficult to look at yeah. the tokens. I don't know if you could do that. Yeah, it, it, well, you, you can, I've done so. And it just requires sort of taking a deep breath and not being in a hurry and and making lots of notes and after a while you begin to see patterns and i mean it, again it's like a big pattern recognition test and uh you know it it all makes sense it's just a matter of of take uh giving it time and and sitting there and working out what's going on it's really fun yeah it is i, I tell you there's um 
maybe it's just certain if you have a certain mind which but there's something really fun about computers and and learning how they work learning how to program them learning how to take it apart it's just it's like un, untangling a ball of string some people it will make them insane and they'll go nah! and some people just go oh this is fascinating <laughs> no, yeah. i could do this all day and you know you know if you're which one you are uh let's see here this is uh we're going to go to swansea wales in the uk phil coleman asks is there really such a thing as a private search engine Steve, I've come across a search engine called StartPage. The uh, European name is IXQuick. And it says, we don't store the user's IP address. We don't install cookies. We, we destroy search data after 48 hours. It allows one to search via a secure proxy. Uh, you can go there right now, eu.startpage.com. In fact, you can use HTTPS with it. Uh, it has won the European Union's privacy seal. The EU is certainly very concerned about privacy. Can there really be anything this good? They have to make their money somehow to pay for their infrastructure. I've asked them what their business model is, and we'll forward their reply if I ever get one. While you recommend Google for their filtering of malware, the privacy conscious among us are uneasy at how much of the data we generate while searching is warehoused and mined and sold. I love the show. It's essential listening. I'm a network administrator for an interactive museum. Well, I think this, of course, is a great... Um a great issue and and concern. My feeling is that a company like Startpage could could run a very similar business model to Google without storing data over the long term. As I understand it, what Google's you know the 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 brilliant thing that Google did relative to search based advertising is they just recognized that if they could aggregate a bunch of advertisers who covered a, whole, a you know a large area of different aspects of the internet that when someone entered a phrase searching for something they could return all of their results but then also in the case of Google down the right hand side show a bunch of search context relevant ads well that doesn't require any kind of state or IP address or cookies, you're just, that's a standalone operation. You search for this, Google gives you your results and provides you with some, some commercial links that may be of interest to you. So I could easily see where, where the start page group that are, that are big on, on highlighting the fact that they're taking privacy so strongly um, could have a a um, an offering that works, you know, in very much the same way, and not be retaining data. Certainly, there's there's the opportunity, given the kind of databases that a search company could build and then monetize somehow to do more than that. But it's not the case. I think that a company needs to, and you know, we continue to hope that Google will. Continue honoring their motto of doing no evil. Yeah, do the right thing. The problem yeah. with, uh, with any company like this is you could trust Google now, but they're collecting all this data, and who knows what the next management team will want to do. Yep. That's the thing that concerns me. It's the same thing with the government. You know, you might say, well, the government's been benign because we could trust the U.S. government, but you give them that power, and then what if somebody comes along, you know, that uh, decides to, mis to abuse it? So yeah. you, you got to keep you got to keep controls on these companies, uh, even if you trust them right now. 
Uh, let's see here. Dan White in Winchester, VA, wonders about incrementing the program counter. Oh, good. We got some. We got some programming stuff here. <laughs> Just listened to uh, the last episode on machine language. Thoroughly enjoyed it, he says. Now um, it brings back memories of when I programmed in Z80 machine language for a computer my dad and I built based on the S100 bus, if you remember that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm looking forward to your discussion of indirection next week and wherever you go after that. My question relates to... I want you to do recursion, too. Yeah, we're going to. Good, okay. Yep. That's the one I'm still wrapping my head around. Yep, because we need to talk about stacks. And so the, the, right. the plan is to talk about you know adding various types of complexity onto the very mm. simple model that we built last week. Yeah. My question relates to something you just uh, glossed over in your jump from the previous discussion of simple gates and flip-flops, which was excellent, by the way, to this discussion of machine language. You spoke of the program counter to allow the program to step through instructions, but doesn't that require more than just simple gates? Seems like it would involve an adding function, a timer, and a looping, a looping mechanism to continually add one to the counter. But that seems to require more complex functions of a program which depend on the program counter. So would you then need a program to create a program? How do you get this chicken and egg thing started? Is the program counter all done in hardware? Did I miss something in your previous discussion? Or is this something you plan to address in future episodes? Thanks for Security Now and for SpinWrite. No great stories, just the normal maintenance of my drives. Dan. Well, I thought that was a neat question. Um, I did sort of just talk about the program counter incrementing and never talked about how that's done. Um, it's not worth a whole episode, so I thought this may be a great question for a Q&A. Um, counting in binary is, is, this, is a process that is, is interesting and sort of fun to work out on the back of a napkin or on the front of a napkin for that reason or for that matter. Um, it turns out that, that a binary counter has a very simple logic to it. If you have a, if you have a string of bits, say, you know, individual bit cells and say that it's, it's initially all set to zero. Well, to, to, to turn it to a one, we, we invert the, the lowest order bit. And so now we've got all zeros and then a one. To increment again, we invert that first, the rightmost bit again. But it, when we invert the bit and the bit goes from a one to a zero, we invert the next bit to the left and what's really cool is that simple logic you just you invert a bit and when you invert it and it goes from one to zero you invert the bit to the left that is the most the, the next most significant bit if you apply that that counts so you start off with all zeros. Count, counts in the sense of counts one, two, three, four, not counts as in is significant. <laughs> it's counting. Yes. It's adding. Yeah. It, 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 it's essentially, it's adding one every time. So we start off with all zeros. We invert the, lo, the least significant bit. It goes to a one. We, so we, and then we invert it again. Well, that bit goes to a zero, which kicks the next one causes it to invert. So that goes, now Now you have a one zero, which is the number two in binary. 
Now we invert the least significant bit again. So now we have a 1, 1. Now, when we do it again, and a 1, 1 is a 3, now we invert the least significant bit. Well, so that one goes to 0, which kicks the next one over. It's a 1. It goes to 0, which kicks the next one over, forming a 1. So now we have 1, 0, 0, which is binary 4. So the logic in our machine, there, it, it, this program counter is a, a register of flip-flops that I talked about before. And there's some logic you can put on a flip-flop such that you're able to cause it to toggle. It flips. If it's on, it flips off. If it's off, it flips on. And so just by wiring those sort of in series, you get a counter. And that allows our machine to address successive incrementing memory locations in sequence. And we also talked last week about altering the instruction flow. That is, this notion of skipping an instruction if the result of an operation was zero or or had some particular characteristics. Well, skipping an instruction merely requires incrementing twice rather than once. So you just send two pulses in in the event that uh, that you want to skip over an instruction, and it adds two to the program counter instead of adding one. So it's a it's a very elegant, very simple solution, um, and works. It's amazing. I just love the I, elegance. The word. In fact, that's one of the that's we talk. I mentioned art. That's why programming is an art because it's not if it's done right. It's not a struggle. It falls into place in a way that's elegant, and you know immediately that's the correct solution because of the of of the elegance of the solution. Yes, I think that's that really says it well. I've 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 seen that when I don't really grasp the problem that I'm trying to solve, but I just sort of start writing code because I'm in a hurry or I'm anxious or impatient, I can sometimes code myself into a corner. I get myself tangled up where I think, oh, wait, I forgot about this. And so I add some code to fix that. It's like, oh, wait, I forgot about that. I add some code over here. And before long, you end up with just this big mess. And in fact, one of my very best friends once said something to me, uh, this is uh, I am an old man. This is about uh, 30 years ago, maybe. Uh, more than that, actually. He said that sufficiently complex problems need to be coded three times. Mm-hmm. Because the act, and you have to solve it all the way three times. Because his observation had been that when he, like, and, and I mean, and this was like a big system, like a CAD CAM uh, PC board routing problem. You know, it's like, if, you know, you start off and you think you know how to solve it. Mm-hmm. So you start programming and the act of reducing this abstract problem to individual instructions to, to reach a solution, that act teaches you so much about the more than you knew in the beginning about the problem you're trying to solve that that when you're done you really need to scrap it you just need to throw it away and start again and and when you're starting the second time you have 
you know, you understand the problem you're trying to solve so much more clearly than you did the first time, even though you thought you understood it then. Now you do it the second time, and again, you still haven't got it. You got it better, but but now you're solving it sort of almost at a meta level because you really do have a grasp of it, having solved it once before already. And then, and then his point was the third time's a charm. If I mean, and and here's the problem: the real world never lets us do this. You know, the real world has managers and marketing schedules and timelines and commitments and all this, and so it's so difficult to ever have an environment where you know, except as you said, Leo, in as an artist, right. where where fundamentally you don't have a commercial goal, you have an artistic sort of aim, and there you can say, okay, wait a minute. Uh, I'm just going to throw this away because I don't like it, and I'm going to start again. You have so, to do that. Yeah, it's part of the process. Yeah, I've got to do. I I keep wanting to do, and you know, we've got people like Randall Schwartz and you who are just top notch, best in breed programmers, and um, I just would love to do a programming show. It's such an abstract subject that I don't know how we would do it. I mean, it's I guess it's no more abstract than what you and I talk with about every week, but um. I would like to do a show about programming as art. And there are people like Paul Graham. Paul Graham's fascinating on this. He wrote a, a book, in fact, called, uh, I think, Hackers and Painters. It's about that compares fine artists and great programmers. It's just a fascinating subject. Anyway, maybe someday. Moving on, question eight. Listener Curtis Clark. Can't get anyone to listen about security, dang it. Stephen Leo, I really need your help with this one. I, I constantly listen to your show, and I'm constantly reading up on all things you guys talk about every week. So many times I find myself seeing a friend or family member doing something that would make you guys cringe, like four-letter passwords. I cringe every time my bank says, give us a four-letter pin. And I don't even say letter, the four-number pin. It's like, come on. Yeah. Or uh, opening random attachments and email. Let's see what this is. If it weren't for <laughs> me. <laughs> oh, they, somebody has a movie of me I can watch. Uh, if it weren't for me keeping up with your show, I'd be reinstalling Windows every three days for these guys. No matter how many times I tell them, don't open that, or why is your password the dog's name? They just don't seem to believe that it can do that much harm. How do I convince them they really need to be careful and that you just can't browse the web like your computer's invincible? Thanks for all you guys do, Curtis. You know, this is a lament that we hear from time to time, and this is not the first time I've even chosen it to share on, That's right. on We've talked Security about this Now. Before, yeah, yeah. Um, there's no magic bullet. All I could tell C Curtis is that he's probably having an effect, even though it's not as profound as he would like. Certainly, all of our listeners who are taking time out of their lives to listen to this podcast and think about these things clearly understand what's going on. We also know from statistics that a huge body of users are, in fact, getting themselves hurt through their actions. Yeah. I saw a statistic just the other day that said from Microsoft's security essentials uh, scanner that one out of every three machines Microsoft is finding has malware oh, on it. So depressing. One out of every three. So, sure, you could look around and, and imagine that the people that you know aren't among that one-third of the users, but that must mean that there are some others very, you know, close by who are. So, 
I, I just think being an evangelist is the best we can do. Um, so, Curtis, I would just say keep trying to get people to understand that uh, that security matters. Yeah. Um, that's all you could do is just sort of just, you know, I mean, don't be a big pain about it. Don't don't overdo it or they'll just, you know, people will will turn will tune you out and and say, oh, that's all you ever talk about is these problems. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, just sort of nudging them up in password length <laughs> would be a good thing to do. You know, the uh, the other day, our chat room, somebody in our chat room was saying, uh, Leo, I can hack your uh, iTunes account because uh, your security question isn't secure because the answer to it is on your Wikipedia page. I said, be my guest. <laughs> because I don't answer the security questions uh-huh. with, with the, the, the right answer. Yep. I mix them up. Yep. So if you ask me what street I uh, lived on when I was growing up, I might tell you the name of the dog I had when I was growing up instead. And see... It's a simple little thing. It's not a hard thing to do or remember. Right. But if you answer the question with something that, you know, is publicly available or easily guessable, what city were you born in? I was just saying, there's no way I'm going to write that into a form. I, I have. Exactly. You know, especially yeah. somebody like uh, uh, you or me who people can find this stuff. Yeah. Last question from Anders Vold Eldhoset in Norway. Actually, two questions about our recent episodes. Steve, I've been listening to Security Now for some, excuse me, some time, and I particularly enjoyed the two recent episodes on how computers work, as well as earlier episodes on programming and engineering. Question one: When working with machine language, and we should say you do not work with machine language; you work with assembly language, right? True, but they're the same. It's a one-to-one correspondence, but instead right. of writing one zero one zero 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 one 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 zero 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 zero. You're well, typing M O V. Yep. You know, thir- yep. So three there, comma one more one on the end of that. <laughs> Sorry, I left that up. <laughs> Were you counting? <laughs> when working with machine language, how do you? De- so typically, when the programmer says I, I I program, they say assembly language, which is it's it's right. It, it renders down a machine language one to one, but it's not machine language. How do you deal with things that aren't easily expressed as numbers by humans? For example, how would you store a string or send instructions to a windowing system? Oh, this is good. I'll let you answer that, and we'll do, do question two. Unless you want to, you think they should go together. No. Um, yeah. Let's do uh, that first. Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, when when you are at the at, at the machine level, waiting for the user to answer a question, um, would you like to proceed? And there's a question mark on the screen. The there's a keyboard in front of the user, and Every one of the keys they press will send a different pattern of ones and zeros, a different byte, essentially, to the computer. So the, the computer knows what the, the so-called ASCII, American Standard Code for Information Interchange, ASCII, what the ASCII pattern of bits is, which is a uniform standard, for each of the keys. So so the keys are actually byte size, that is to say 8-bit numbers, with each key corresponding to a different number. So say that this question is, is supposed to have a Y or an N, um, and those are the only two acceptable results. 
and the user might use capital or lowercase. We're not sure which. So what the computer would do is, is wait for the user to press a key and then receive the byte, which is just a, an 8-bit number, essentially. And we know that there's four acceptable numbers. The number that represents the capital Y character, a different number for lowercase y, another number for capital N, and another number for lowercase n. So what, we, what, the, what the computer would do is, is compare the number that was received with one by one with each of these four possible valid responses. And in the way compare instructions work in, in, a, in at machine language is they normally subtract one from the other. And only if they're the same will the answer be zero. So you'll, you'll, you'll do a compare instruction comparing what was received versus the pattern for capital Y. And then you'll check to see if the result is zero. If so, that means that they were equal. So you've, you figured out the guy was responding affirmatively. Then you'll check to see if it's, but if not, if, if they weren't equal, then you, you go to the next step, which is see if it's equal to the lowercase y number. And if so, now again, you know that these responded affirmatively. And so you'll, you'll take a branch off to that code in your program. If neither capital Y nor lowercase y, well, you want to check to see whether they've responded negatively with capital N or lowercase n. So again, you perform two comparisons. And if none of those have happened, that if, if, if they chose, if they hit Q or something else, then you'll, you'll end up with no equality matches in your four tests and probably want to say back to the user, please respond with Y or N to the question. So, you know, there's, there's a, a very simple approach or a, a simple example of, of how even though we're dealing with bits and, and little globs of bits, bytes, where the human sees the computer as, oh, look, it knows about Y and N. It knows yes and no or something else. When in fact, inside... The computer is just saying, okay, or the programmer knew what the patterns were for those keys and checked to see whether the patterns matched or not. And, and, the, and for me, the charm of, of computing is that what's really happening down at the machine level, as we discussed last week, is no more complex than that. It's just, do things compare? Are they bigger? Are they smaller? Equal? If so, jump here. So you get to you get to build this fantastic, fan, you know, flexible, powerful system that we're all using. We're sitting in front of. I mean, we're listening to audio coming, you know, which is, is represented as bytes of numbers flowing, and it's turned back into sound. I mean, and and being processed. But fundamentally, at the lowest level, we're just dealing. With, with abstract patterns of bits. And from that, we get to build something just spectacular. I, I, to me, that's just magic. <laughs> you can. I mean, if you want to represent a string, most assemblers 
will allow you to write a string, a quoted string, and stick each letter in a place, right? I mean, I'm, I mean, that's that's not a. It's not like you you're looking at it and you have to go, you know, do it in hex or something. True. There are the the assembler exactly, Leo. The uh, the the assembler does some things for you to to for example, you don't have to to have a chart of A through Z right. and, and be looking be looking them up <laughs> right. and writing them all down. You're right. able to do it'll understand like quotes and that you have a, you have you have a, a series of characters and it understands what the ASCII codes are and will will do them. So for example, I would where when I'm writing, I would say um, CMP um, AL, which is a, a, the short name for the lower half of the A accumulator. So it's a byte size. I would say CMP AL comma quote Y quote. So it's saying compare what's in the AL register to the ASCII value of Y. And then I would say J-N-E, jump if not equal, or J-E for jump equal, and then to, to somewhere else. So it's, it's definitely the case that, you know, I'm very comfortable writing that way. Um, but what, what I like is that there's, that what I write is exactly what the computer does. And, you know, I enjoy writing, so I don't mind that I right. have to write a lot of stuff to get not that much done. Um, I just like it that I just can't see it being any better than, than you know, I mean, it's it's exactly what I intend is what the computer's doing. Well, that's easy for you to say. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people uh, think that they are saying exactly what they mean. And the computer says, uh, really? You, you You wanted to do that? Okay. And it's not what they thought they were saying. You're just a good programmer and experienced. Question well, I'm two. O- I'm, I'm old. You're old and goofy. Yeah. Yeah. Or kooky. Kooky. Question two from Anders. Do you use anything but ASM yourself? For instance, Perl on your web server or Tickle TK for your GUIs or something like that. Why or why not? Um, that's a great question that I get asked, of course, often. Um, I love writing an assembler. I'm very comfortable with it, but it's certainly the case that I can't do it everywhere. For example... GRC's news server is was based on INN, which is the sort of the standard internet NNTP protocol news group server. It's open source. It's in C. And what GRC is running is a is a much modified version of that. Um, our news groups have all kinds of cool features, which I've added, like authenticated deletion of posts so that the people who post to the news group server in, into the GRC news groups are able to simply delete their own posts, but nobody else can. Well, that's a problem in general for news groups on, on Usenet is that, you know, deleting other people's posts, there was no authentication mechanism for that. But I added that to the newsgroup server, and we have all kinds of other features. The, the The people who post there don't want the postings to to be sucked out by someone else. For example, once the, for br- briefly they were appearing on Google's groups, and c- consistently the people at, who hang out in the GRC newsgroups just want them to stay there. They don't want them to 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 leak out. So there's another feature where 
the as postings are being pulled from the news server, the news server tags on the IP of the other end of the connection. That is the first client reading the post. Well, the beauty of that is that we were able, for example, in the case of them leaking out to Google, able to look at the headers of the GRC articles, which Google had, and we could see the IP that was causing the leak. And then I was able to block that IP, which turned out to be some corporation somewhere decided they wanted to start cloning all of our news groups on their own server. And we said, ah, we'd rather you didn't do that. So those are all things, since this code is written in C, I modified the C code. I mean, in classic open source fashion, I took advantage of the fact that it was an open source server and went in and made all kinds of changes in C, which, you know, I also... So you're comfortable with C. Oh, absolutely. C is a beautiful uh, language. Especially I really like if, it. Yeah, if you, it's the next best thing to uh, assembler, really. It's just gorgeous. Yeah, I really, there's a lot of things I like about C. And then the wacky language of, of my choice is Perl, mm. which is completely Looney Tunes. I mean, it is, it is, it's what I use for any sort of one-off things I'm doing. I have processed all of GRC's web pages through Perl scripts when I wanted to make wholesale changes throughout the whole site. Or it's great for parsing logs that where I'm just sort of doing ad hoc stuff. I don't want to, I know it doesn't make sense to write a whole bunch of assembly language for something where I just want to do some quick, you know, pattern match and search and, and or, or something. So there are places where I'll certainly like, you know, use Perl just because I'm just banging out something really quick. But, you know, all of the code that I write that's serious, you know, the the e-commerce system for GRC, all of the stuff that runs GRC's server um, and all the apps that I write, I just write an assembly because for me, it's still what I prefer. Mm -hmm. But so, yeah, there is some variation from that, but largely assembler unless there's some reason not to. That's so. So you're not you're not uh, anti other languages. It's just one you prefer. Yeah, I exactly. find most programmers are like that. That they um, because you know Randall says this. He says if you don't program three hours a day in Perl, you you're going to lose your fluency. You need to use it in and in constantly to maintain your fluency. I don't know if assemblers like that, but I think that uh, there's a certain amount of fluency gained by doing it day in day out. Maybe you've done it long enough now that you would never lose it. Um, when I've not, there, there have been times when I have felt rusty, but I understand what Randall means about Pearl. Pearl is just so yeah, it's kind of bizarre. Yeah. Um, for me, I, I don't lose assembler because to, for, for me, there's less to lose. There just isn't right. much. There, there, yeah, that's different. You're right. There's much, not a lot of syntax to know. Exactly. Yeah. I was going to say semantics. There isn't right. that much semantics right. in assembler, but Perl is just insanely right. um, like wild Arcane. with the things yeah. it will do. And yeah. so you really do. I mean, I, I, I spend a lot of time debugging Perl. I spend almost no time debugging my assembly language because that I really understand. I've got that nailed. And so, you know, very often... I'm just, you know, when I'm in a debugger, it's really the exception um, in Assembler. But I use, I, I'm, I'm single-stepping through Perl all the time going, okay, what just happened here? I just, you know, this did something I don't understand. And that's the point is 
the reason I love Assembler is it never does something I don't understand because there's nothing there. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, it's just moving data from one right. register to another. That there's makes no sense. Mystery. Yeah. 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 Cause it, well, so my point was that p people who are working in higher level languages where the syntax is tough to remember tend to f pick one and work in it all the time. They might dabble in others. And then there's there's dilettantes like me. I collect languages. I love, <laughs> love learning languages and playing with them, writing small pieces of code. But every time I come back to a language, I have to almost relearn the thing from scratch just yeah. because I've forgotten everything. But, you know, uh, I started with uh, BASIC, like a lot of people, uh, did a lot of C programming, which I love. Did Assembler, 68,000 Assembler. Wrote several uh, fairly large programs in Assembler and loved it. Learned Fourth, which was really weird and great. Uh, Fourth is a, a remarkable language. I love it, Fourth. It's, it's a write-only language. Well, it, it, can be, it can look like pure English, but uh, you make up your own vocabulary. So in yeah. that sense, it is write-only because you have to, <laughs> it's your vocabulary. Well, and, and, and when I say that, my experience with Fourth has been that it is, it is possible to write it. I mean, obviously, you're able to write it. But reading it... <laughs> Is like okay. Wait a minute. You know, and maybe I just I'm not fluent enough in fourth. But it's you know, it's you, the the theory behind it, first. Also, fourth is very weird because it's stack based. I mean, it's a uh, it's got this little interpreter running in it. It uses RPN, not yep. uh, you know, it's postfix, not infix. So it's, it does a lot of things very differently. So there's some some you know weirdness to that. Um, the re it's used. It was originally written by Charles Moore, and I interviewed him by the way a few years ago at Tech TV. It was really a pleasure. He's an Astronomy astronomer, application. right? Yep. He wrote it to control telescopes. Yep. So it's used a lot in embedded because it's very compact. But you can write if you if you set up your vocabulary, you can write in almost plain English, postfix English. Well, it's not only is it compact, but the the core interpreter that you need is very small right so so you're able to bring up a fourth interpreter on a new chip just a family very easily yeah. yeah you can do it in hardware yep so um just it's a so anyway i think then perl and python and ruby and c plus plus and it's for me it's fun to look at how languages are implemented somewhere i have a document that a guy wrote 10 things to do when you're learning a new language, like 10 programs to write, you know, like Towers of Hanoi, that kind of thing. Right. And his position was, and I think he was right, I've, I've preserved it, that if you, if you use these as your exercises, and once you've finished it, you will be fairly fluent in a language. So that, that's uh, somewhere I'll find that and I'll put that up somewhere. But uh, it's, it's, I, it's a great hobby as well as a for somebody who uses it professionally like you do. Um, but I just always, always loved it as a hobby. Well, and it, we're surrounded by it. All of our listeners who That's are right. using computers, I mean, there's all of this was written by people in one language or another. I told, I talked to a high school class a couple of weeks ago, an engineering class, and I said, learn to program. <laughs> Simple. Just learn to yeah. program. Yeah. You couldn't, there is no better time than right now to know how to program because if you have a good idea, you can implement it virtually for free on Amazon's uh, EC2 or on uh, Google. The Google App Engine, they provide bandwidth for, you know, a basic site. And you can create a, a proof of concept. You can really create a business for nothing if you know how to program. And, you know, I think that understanding some, some basics of programming really helps using a computer. I yeah. think you, there's a, if you understand something about the way computers work, you're able to guess about how to get things done 
at when you're a user of a computer. You just sort of, you know, you have a mindset that helps you sort of, you know, grok right. what it is that, you know, that the programmers were probably thinking. Well, but that's the point also is that some people will never, you know, if if you took geometry and couldn't do it, couldn't get it, or if you took chemistry and it was like, mm. this is too hard. I mean, there's some people who just, it's not right for. Just out of reach. Right. Yeah. But if you're yeah. the kind of person who can get that kind of thing or logic, uh, you're good at maths, then programming is, should be fairly easy. And it is well, well worth pursuing. I th- oh, it's yep. so much fun. And it's not going away. <laughs> nope. We'll be talking about it next week, as a matter of fact. Oh, what is next week? Next week is we're going to build on our foundation, which we laid last week, of a very simple but completely functional machine language. We're going to now talk about the real-world extensions to that, the things that have been done since, which uh, took that basic platform and made it much more usable. Hmm, that's intriguing. Next week on Security Now, you'll find Steve at GRC.com, the Gibson Research Corporation. That's where Spinrite lives, the world's best hard drive recovery and maintenance utility, a must-have if you've got a hard drive, uh, but also all those free programs he writes. If you have questions for our next Q&A session, two weeks hence, Go to grc.com slash feedback. Show notes, 16 kilobit versions of the show, uh, transcriptions, the works available at grc.com slash security now. Just browse around. GRC is really a playground for geeks. And Steve, we'll see you next week. Thanks, Leo. Talk to you then. Security now.